You're listening to the sermon audio from Mill Creek Community Church. If you like what you've heard or want to find out more information, please visit our website at mymillcreek.com. Then Bethel. Then they journeyed from Bethel when, when they were still some distance from Ephrath. Rachel went into labor and she had hard labor. And when her labor was at its hardest, the midwife said to her, Do not fear, for you have another son. And as her soul was departing, for she was dying, she called his name Ben-Ani, but his father called him Benjamin. So Rachel died, and she was buried on the way to Ephrath, that is Bethlehem. And Jacob set up a pillar over her tomb. It is the pillar of Rachel's tomb, which is there to this day. Israel journeyed on and pitched his tent beyond the Tower of Eder. While Israel lived in that land, Reuben went and lay with Balah, his father's concubine, and Israel heard of it. Now the sons of Jacob were twelve. The son of Leah, Reuben, Jacob's firstborn, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, and Zebulun. The sons of Rachel, Joseph, and Benjamin. The sons of Bala, Rachel's servant, Dan and Naphtali. The sons of Zilpah, Leah's servant, Gad and Asher. These were the sons of Jacob who were born him in Padan Aram. And Jacob came to his father Isaac at Mamre, or Kareth Arba, that is Hebron, where Abraham and Isaac had sojourned. Now the days of Isaac were 180 years, and Isaac breathed his last, and he died and was gathered to his people, old and full of days. And his sons Esau and Jacob buried him. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for allowing us to be here and worship you this morning. Uh, Please be with Dave as he delivers the message, and please open our hearts and minds to learn from the preaching of your word this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you, Drew. Thank you, Drew. It's so good to see uh, the students of this church uh, having this church be theirs. I love that. Uh, again, I'm David, one of the pastors here. It's a joy to be with you again here, uh, a little drier this time, um, but it's a joy to, be able to, to open God's word up this morning. If you're not aware, uh, our main teaching pastor, uh, Jeremy Krause, is on sabbatical this summer. Uh, he comes back around Labor Day, and we're excited to be able to give him a little bit of a break here over these few months to recharge his batteries and to uh, come back rested and ready to go. But I just want to say thanks to Jonathan Drendel, our uh, pastoral resident, who's been teaching a lot this summer. I'm grateful for him kind of picking up some of the teaching load this summer. So if you see Jonathan or Dora, uh, just slap him on the back, say thanks. He won't know why you're telling him that, um, because he's preaching somewhere else this morning up at our church plant, Proclamath and Bonner Springs. So next week, if you see him, just slap him, tell him thanks, and everyone does it. That'd be great. That'd be lovely. So he'd love it. He's a good sport like that. One of the things I love about about being part of a local church is that we do get to see people of all different walks of life, different stages of life. We have some that are younger, some that are older, and some, like myself, that are stuck somewhere in between, in the the middle. Uh, I remember a time in my life where if someone would have said, hey, that person's 20, I would have thought, they're really old. But now, when I hear someone's in their 50s, I think, oh, they're pretty young still. That's that's great. That's lovely. Um, I'm at that stage of life. It's been interesting lately to be in conversations with people in the room, and I, we look around and we're like, well, we really should let the adults make this decision, shouldn't we? And in that same breath, I realize, shoot, I'm one of the adults that has to make that decision. See, for a while in life, it was wedding after wedding that I attended, but more and more, it seems like there are more funerals that we get invited to. Just yesterday, my wife and I attended the celebration of life of one of our dear friends from our previous church in Manhattan. Uh, our age passed away here this, this last month, and uh, we spent time yesterday remembering the impact and remembering her life and, and hearing stories of, of what God had been doing in her and how God had been using her and God had been leaving uh, this wonderful legacy uh, after her. 
And for all of us, whether we're somewhere in the, the middle or we're on the younger end of the spectrum or on the older end of the spectrum, there, there comes a day and a time where you begin thinking, what do you want to be remembered for? What's the reputation that, that you want others to think of when you're not around? What is the, the legacy that you want to leave for generations that follow you? Maybe when you think of legacy, your mind automatically goes to, well, oh, I want my kids to be normal, and I want that to be my legacy. I just, I just, I want that so badly. Maybe others, when you think legacy, you think, I want to have enough money saved up for, for generations to come where they don't have to think about, you know, working or making a lot of money that I can provide for them. Maybe others, when you think legacy, you think maybe a building or a place that has your name on it, somewhere that can be seen for, for decades or maybe even centuries down the road. What about you? When you think about your reputation or your legacy, what is it that you want to leave? What is it that you want others to remember about you? Well, this morning as we are continuing in the book of Genesis, we come to Genesis 35, where we're once again looking at the life of a man named Jacob. And Jacob has been the, the main character through the last 10 or so chapters of the book of Genesis, with his mom and dad and his father-in-law and his wife serving as these secondary characters. We've read about Jacob's interactions with God, his family, and other nations around him. And what I've enjoyed about the story of Jacob so far is that there have been these great highs and these deep lows. These spiritual elation moments followed by deep, hard domestic tragedy. And all the story of Jacob brings us here to chapter 35 and the beginning of the end of the focus of Jacob in Genesis. We get one last glimpse of the kind of legacy that Jacob is going to be leaving for generations to come by looking at his life and how he acts, how he thinks, how he operates with those around him. And chapter 35 is in many ways a summary of the life of Jacob. And in this chapter, we're going to see three main traits of Jacob's life so far. We're going to see slow obedience, forgotten faith, and messy relationships. And so if you have your Bibles and you haven't already done so, please open to Genesis 35 or maybe you've got those teaching sheets. Look on the back of it. I think the, the passage is printed there. I want to walk us through the text this morning so that you'll know it's coming from Scripture, not just from a good idea or two that I had these last few weeks. Let's first look at the first trait that he's leaving, this legacy of slow obedience. We see it in verses 1 to 8. Let me read there in verse 1 as we begin. But God said to Jacob, Arise. Go up to Bethel and dwell there. Make an altar there to the God who appeared to you when you fled from your brother Esau. And this is such a kind and tender beginning, these opening words that we read here in Genesis 35. After all that Jacob has done, after all the deceit, the evil, the lying, the scorched earth policy that he has left behind him, God shows up in his life and speaks to him and says, Arise, go to Bethel. And if you have been with us over the last couple of weeks, you might remember that Bethel was the place where God showed up. And Jacob had this dream, remember the staircase of angels that were walking up and down, kind of a weird thing. And Jacob there knew, and he heard God say that God would bring him back to that place, give it to him, make his family a blessing to the rest of the earth. But up to that point in chapter 28, Jacob had no personal knowledge or understanding of, of a relationship with God. In many ways, he was a thoroughly corrupt character, but yet God made this declaration to him then, and God shows up again here. Now, 30 years later, 30 years from chapter 28 to chapter 35, 
And God gives him a similar command. He tells him to go back to Bethel. And what does Jacob do? Well, he says in verse 2, he said to his household and all who are with him, put away the foreign gods that are among you. Purify yourself, change your garments. Let us arise and go to Bethel that I may make there an altar to the God who answers me in the day of my distress. To this God who has been with me wherever I've gone. They gave to Jacob all the foreign gods they had, the rings that were in their ears, and Jacob hid them under the terebinth tree that was near Shechem. See, over these 30 years of Jacob's life, God had been completely faithful to keep his end of the bargain. Even if Jacob wavered, forgot, and was slow to obey and change. But here at God's prompting, Jacob confidently says, all right, pack it up, fam. We're going to Bethel. We're doing this. We're getting around to obeying. But yet Jacob still is, is deeply flawed. He's not a perfect guy. There's things in his household that aren't right. His family had accumulated foreign gods as we read in the text here. But here he leads his family to getting rid of these foreign gods, these little idols that had made their way into his camp. And in some ways I'm a little bit jealous because it seems like idolatry is a little bit easier to determine in the Old Testament world here. Were there idols in your camp? Yes, that's idolatry. We have all these idol idols in our own hearts that are harder to see today. But here he says, bring out your foreign gods. Bring out your trinkets. Bring out all those things that you have been worshiping and, and make a pile right here in the middle of camp. And I wonder if Jacob was surprised by the number, the amount of foreign gods that made their way out of the tents. Maybe even out of his own tent. And he puts them away. He buries them under a tree. And this is an important moment in Genesis because this is the first time in, in this book so far that, that we've been told that someone is to get rid of something other than the God of Scripture. Where we're told that it is a good thing for there to just be one God that we worship. This is the definition or the, the term is monotheism. This is the first time that we're seeing this monotheistic, one God practice in Genesis. To put away the other competing gods and to worship, to only have one. And this is a statement that Jacob is making in his life. That he's beginning to understand who this God is, who's spoken tenderly to him, who's walked alongside him for these three decades. He determines that his household, his family, does not need other gods. They just need the one God. So they pack up and go, and as they journey, verse 5 tells us, a terror of God fell among the other cities that were around them. So they didn't pursue Jacob. God protected them. Jacob came to Luz, that's Bethel, which is in the land of Canaan. He and all the people that were with him, and there he built an altar. And he named that place El Bethel. Because there... God had revealed himself to him when he fled from his brother. So Jacob does what God tells him to do. And he does more, which is interesting. He goes to Luz, and he renames it Luz to Bethel. That's what God told him to do. But he goes from Bethel to El Bethel. He's like, okay, it's not just the house of God. It's God, the house of God. He takes it a step further, and he builds an altar there. And maybe the truth of verse 3 is ringing in his ears as he recognizes, maybe for the first time in his entire life, that it really has been God who's protected him. God who has been with him. God who has given him all that he has. And this life of slow obedience is starting to maybe change just a little bit. Instead of waiting decades to obey, perhaps, Jacob's beginning to say, oh, when God says, 
I need to do. And just as we have this small turn in Jacob's life, we come to verse 8, which at first reading seems to be a little bit of an out-of-place verse. Do you, do you see that in verse 8? It says that Deborah, Rebekah's nurse, died, and she was buried under an oak below Bethel. So he called its name Alon Bakuth. I say it's out of place because we've never heard this name before. We've, we've never been told that Deborah exists in the Bible. So why is she mentioned here? Why is it so important that in this chapter of obedience, God says, through the author of this book, oh yeah, remember that it's Deborah, Rebecca's nurse, also died. Well, I think that's something to do with Jacob. Jacob, if you remember, part of his story is that he was a mama's boy. I mean, Jacob was always the guy that ran to mom when things got hard. And at this point, Bible scholars believe that Jacob's mom had passed and that this woman, Deborah, would have served as a nurse with him, would have raised him, would have been the one that had spoken to him and and helped him with his skin knee when he fell down, would have walked alongside him and said, you're doing great, you're doing great. Kind of like this pseudo-mother figure to him. And the timing of this death, I think, is important because it comes right after verse 7. It's funny how the Bible does that. Verse 8 follows verse 7. Verse 7, we're told, we're told all these wonderful things that he's doing, but we're reminded, oh, he did this when he was fleeing from his brother, his brother who wanted to kill him, wanted to kill him because he stole his blessing. He wanted to steal his blessing because he just wanted, and his mom helped him do that. But here we're told that this woman died. Jacob's life had been filled with schemes and cunning, and it was always mom who bailed him out and cleaned up after him. And I I think the author of this verse is reminding us it's not about Jacob's cleverness. It wasn't about somebody bailing him out. That's not what was going to get him through life. It wasn't his mom's protective maneuvers that kept him safe, but it was God who kept him safe all these years. It was God who had been with him in his day of distress. God's slowly removing the training wheels from Jacob's life of faith and allowing him to begin to rely on God alone for balance. And while this chapter goes pretty far in saying that Jacob actually obeyed, I I want us, before we pat Jacob on the back and say, way to go, Jacob, you're always obeying. Good job. I want us to remember the context of this obedience. It's after 30 years of God saying to do something. 30 years. I didn't do the math. Some people tell me after this service what the math is, the number of days, that is, number of hours, number of moments that he had to decide, I'm going to go back and obey. Now I'm going to go back and obey. But he didn't. Year after year, decade after decade, he did not obey what God had told him to do. 30 years ago, when he was at Bethel, Jacob had said, God, if you will be with me, if you give me bread, if you give me clothing, if you let me go home to my dad in peace, then you'll be my God and I'll set up an altar here at Bethel and I'll even give you a tenth of all that I have. That was Jacob's pledge to God. It's like you saying, God, if you do 99% of all the hard work in my life, If you do everything and make it super easy for me, I will get around to obeying you at some point. I'll finally decide to do that last 1%, only if you make it really easy for me to do that last 1%. And I'm sure nobody in this room has ever 
made that deal with God, right? No one's ever said, God, if you make it super easy, I will obey. If you make it really, 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 I don't need a lot of faith, I will show a lot of faith. I'll take that step as long as you make it easy for me. Well, that's how Jacob operated. That was the life and the legacy of this man, Jacob. Up to this point, he's quick to make deals. He's slow to obey. And that model of slow obedience is not the only bad trait that he's passing down to his next generation. We see the second trait in verses 9 to 15 where we're going to see his legacy of forgotten faith. So after burying idols and going up to Bethel, Jacob and his family finally arrived and built an altar. And we read this in verse 9. I love how this begins. Verse 9 says, God appeared to Jacob again. When he came from Padam Aram, and God blessed him. And God said to him, your name is Jacob. No longer shall your name be Jacob, but Israel shall be your name. And so he called his name Israel. And God said to him, I am God Almighty. Be fruitful and multiply. A nation and a company of nations shall come from you, and kings shall come from your own body. The land that I gave to Abraham and Isaac I will give to you. I will give you the land to your offspring after you. Then God went up from him in the place where he had spoken with him, and Jacob set up a pillar in the place where he had spoken with him, a pillar of stone. Jacob poured out a drink offering on it and poured oil on it, and Jacob called the name of the place where God had spoken to him, Bethel. See, while God deals kindly and consistently with him, much of Jacob's life up to this point had been spent relying upon himself. So those opening words in verse 9 are so beautiful. That God appeared to him again. God appeared to him again. And some of the same language that was used to describe an interaction a few chapters back in Genesis 17 where God showed up to to Jacob's grandpa Abraham again and he blessed him he reminded him of what was true he reminded him that there's a name change that there's kings that are going to come from your family God reminded Abraham and God is doing the same thing here just a few chapters later to this cunning man Jacob God kindly reminds Jacob of what is true. He repeats, he reminds, he points Jacob away from the things that are false and points him back to what is true. And part of God changing the direction of his life and legacy is reminding him of of who he is. You see that in verse 10? Look there, God says to him, your name is Jacob. No longer shall your name be called Jacob, but Israel shall be your name. And maybe you're thinking, oh, Pastor Dave, didn't he already get a new name just a couple of chapters ago? Like, didn't we just preach that a few weeks ago? Yes, that's the point. He was wrestling with the angel back in 32, and God said, your name's not Jacob anymore, it's Israel. I don't know how much time has elapsed between 32 and 35, but it's good that God says to him, remember what is true. I'm not sure if he forgot completely or forgot just a little bit, but he did not remember fully who he was. And even worse, I think he might have forgotten who was speaking to him. See that in verse 11? God said to him, I am God Almighty. Be fruitful and multiply. It's interesting because I I don't think you tell somebody your name if you are 100% sure they know your name. 
You don't walk up to somebody out in the commons afterwards and be like, yeah, my name is David. And like, I know your name's David. We've met 74 times. Sorry if I've done that to you recently. I just, I love meeting new old people <laughs> or old new people. But here God says to him, just in case you forgot, I am God Almighty. It's the same blessing here, this be fruitful and multiply, the same command that was given to Adam in the garden and Noah after the flood. And this thing that God is doing here with Jacob has continuity all the way back to the beginning, to God's original intent for humanity. And God is repeating the affirmation out of his kindness, out of his gentleness, out of his perseverance to those of us like Jacob who forget He's reminding him that 30 years earlier, he made a promise to Jacob, and he's been keeping up his end of the bargain for the last three decades. And Jacob, right here again, was once again hearing the unmistakable declaration and big flashing neon sign, do not forget who you are. You're not Jacob, you're Isaac. And right next to that sign is an equally large, even larger size saying, do not forget who I am. I am God Almighty, it is God who has said, I'm going to bless you. I was with your father, your grandfather. I'm going to give you the land that I've promised to them. I'm going to do that. Do not doubt me. No longer are you Jacob, the heel grabber, but your name is Israel, whose name means the Lord contends and fights for you. You're not out there on your own trying to make it through, exist, However you can through your own schemes, but God says, I am fighting for you. Do not forget. It's up to this point, the life of Jacob that he lived was operating out of his own strength, abilities, cleverness, and plans. But the legacy that Israel was to leave was one of faith in the character, word, and promises of God. He needed to remember who he was and remember who God was. And while we're starting to see maybe just a little bit of a change in his life and a change in the trajectory of Jacob and his family, there comes a a time in all of our lives when what we've done in the past catches up to us and we can't outrun decisions we've made or relationships that have gone south. And it's true for us, but it's especially true for Jacob because we see in verses 16 to 29 the third trait, the third bit of legacy that he is passing down to the next generation. It's a legacy of messy relationships. As mentioned before, Jacob or Israel didn't have the the best home life. Remember, he was coddled by mom. He tricked his dad. His brother wanted to kill him for a couple of decades. That was a tough part of Thanksgiving meals. He he lied to his father-in-law. His father-in-law tried to deceive him a bunch of times. And his kids, well, as we saw in last chapter, his kids were a lot of things, not many of them good. But he always had his beloved wife, Rachel. Right up until verse 16, where we read that that his family, they journeyed from Bethel. And when they were still some distance from Ephrath, Rachel went into labor, and she had hard labor. And when her labor was at its hardest, the midwife said to her, Do not fear, for you have another son. And as her soul was departing, for she was dying, she called his name Benoni. But his father called him Benjamin. So Rachel died She was buried on the way to Ephrath, that is Bethlehem. And Jacob set up a pillar over her tomb. It's the pillar of Rachel's tomb, which was there to this day. 
This is such a sad passage. For anyone who has lost a spouse, you, you know the pain that Jacob felt. Jacob loved his wife, Rachel. But he knew, he knew that she was not a perfect person. He's not trying to idolize her. She had issues on her own. Remember just a couple chapters earlier in Genesis 31, it was Rachel who, when they were leaving their father's family, she stole a couple of the family idols and, and hid them, taking them along with Jacob and his family. And in an almost self-fulfilling prophecy, her own dad said that death was going to come to the person who stole his gods. And here we see it just a couple of chapters later that this curse has seemingly taken place. And we have no idea why she took the idols with her, but here in this passage, it seems that the author is setting up a contrast. There's Jacob, who's worshiping God alone, and others in his family whose hearts are still kind of tempted, holding on to these other things. And perhaps this is most revealed that as she is dying, she names her son Ben-Onai, meaning son of my trouble, misfortune, son of my disaster. That's where her heart is. And it's easy to see why she calls him this. She's in pain. She is dying. But, but there's a contrast in there where, where Jacob, for the first time ever, he, he names one of his sons. He says, his name's not Ben-Onai. His name is Benjamin, which means son of my right hand, son of my good fortune. And in this incredibly difficult situation, as his relationship with his beloved wife is ending, I believe that Jacob here remembers what God has been saying to him. It's not, he's not just a slave to his past, but that Jacob, this guy, he has a future and a hope. God has been speaking tenderly to him and reminding him of what is true, reminding him of this promise that he has made that God will keep. And it doesn't change how much he mourns the loss of his wife, but it be. It does begin to change, perhaps, the way that, that we see Jacob. There's these little shifts in his life where he's choosing to obey God, to follow God, to remember God. There's this renewed leadership here in his family where he faithfully says, it's not the, the son of disaster, but this is the son of good fortune. And like much of life, this goes smoothly for about two verses. You see verse 21? It said that Israel journeyed on and he pitched his tent beyond the tower of Eder. Good, good so far, right? That's good. He, he moved on. Then we come to verse 22, where Israel, when he lived in that land, Reuben went and lay with Bilhah, his father's concubine, and Israel, the dad, heard of it. Whew. Well, Reuben hasn't been mentioned in a while, and this is not a really good way to come back into the story, is it? But he's the firstborn son of Israel. In the verses to follow, you kind of see a bit of a power ranking of the, the order of the sons of Israel. And Reuben's first on that list. He is the oldest. He is the, the one who has the, the first chair in the family. And this is not a story, though, of a young man who's out of control with his passions, who just can't control himself. This was a, a power-grabbing move intentionally made by the firstborn of Israel. 
See, in that day and age, this act of, of laying with his father's concubine would have been Reuben trying to steal a little bit of thunder from dad, to take something that was of great value to dad and saying, it's not yours anymore, it's mine. I'm stealing this from you. It's a deliberate attempt to take Israel's place as the head of the house. Because Reuben could see the handwriting on the wall. Jacob just named this son Benjamin, son of my right hand. And he's like, wait, Dad, I thought I was the son of your right hand. He's trying to wrestle privilege from that boy. And, and Israel, in the process of grieving his wife, in the season of traveling and obeying God and of having things be revealed about his family that have been been trying to hide for decades. Here he is again, his son, now breaking in and saying, I, I want what you have, Dad. Give it to me now. And Israel, this former mama's boy, is losing all the women in his life. Do you see this pattern? If he's already lost his mom, this passage tells us that he's lost his nurse. He's lost his wife. Now he's lost Bilhah to his own son. He's losing the very safety net of his life, the women around him. And while Reuben's going to be held accountable for what he's done, this is a sinful act, I, I don't think it came out of left field. See, Reuben knows his dad. He knows who Jacob is. He's grown up hearing stories of stolen blessings He's grown up hearing about how his dad had all these less than forthright dealings with everybody around him. He's watched his dad passively sit back and watch his kids do some horrible, horrible things. And we'll see the impacts of these messy relationships for chapters and chapters as we finish the book of Genesis. But the point here is fairly clear that Israel is dealing with the consequences of his own messy relationships. He's living in the wreckage of his own sin, of his family's sin, of Adam's sin, and he cannot escape death, which is the natural outcome of all sin. And the chapter closes by reminding us of that because Israel has one more funeral that he has to attend. Look there in verse 27. It says, Jacob came to his father Isaac at Mamre, or Kiriath Arba, that is Hebron, where Abraham and Isaac had sojourned. And now the days of Isaac were 180 years. And Isaac, Jacob's dad, breathed his last. And he died and was gathered to his people, old and full of days. And his sons Esau and Jacob buried him. It's been a while since we've read about Jacob's dad, Isaac, hasn't it? The son of Abraham, the child of promise, who was once taken up a hill to be sacrificed, but God provided this ram in the thicket. This is the kid, this is the dad who dies. And the author is telling us here that another burial takes place. They've buried idols, they've buried a nurse, they've buried Rachel, now Isaac burying his father. I'm sorry, Isaac is being buried by his two sons. Jacob is burying his father. And these two sons for generations would be the epitome of messy relationships as their peoples fought and fought and fought and fought. Like Abraham and Isaac before him, Jacob now, as he buries his dad, he stands alone as the patriarch, the head of the family. And as this chapter closes, 
And chapter 36 begins, as the chapters begin to move, Jacob or Israel moves from being in the primary spot, the primary focus, and becomes quickly a secondary character. And as he does, this legacy of slow obedience, of forgotten faith and messy relationships leave this wake in front and behind him. Jacob passed down these traits to his 12 sons, and his 12 sons passed down those traits to their own children, and it's the same traits that you and I have received from our parents, have inherited from those who have gone before us. And it's what we're going to pass down to our kids and what their kids are going to pass down to their kids. Because Jacob's traits are our traits. His legacy is our, our legacy. See, church, it doesn't matter how hard we try to, to prepare the next generation to be kind, perfectly adjusted people who always make the best decisions. Every parent and boss or educator knows that we don't do that. No matter how hard we try to set aside enough money for our own retirement or for future generations, we know that recessions and inflation and cost of living increases make that pursuit never-ending. It's a number we'll never hit. And no matter how hard we try to surround ourselves with only positive people and avoid all the toxic people in our lives, each one of us are just so selfish that we will mess up every one of our relationships on our own. And this is the deadly cycle that we find ourselves in, unable to escape it on our own. Jacob needed God to break into his story a couple of times to remind him of what was true. And like Jacob, you and I need God to step into our story and remind us of what is true. To remind us to look beyond our abilities, our attempts, our good-natured hopes and dreams and trust that there is one who offers to stop the cycle of disobedience, forgetfulness, and destruction. Friends, we need Jesus. And all of us, whether you're a student, a parent, a grandparent, all of our lives end with us standing before the one who is righteous, holy, the beginning, the end, and have our lives laid open in front of him, have our lives be judged before the God who is holy, perfect. And when that happens, it's not going to be our legacy that saves us. It won't be how well we've raised our kids, if we've obeyed enough rules, or how much you've saved, or how often you were kind to others. The only thing that will matter on that day is whether or not your life is pointing to Jesus. Whether or not your legacy is wrapped up in Christ's legacy. And I'm so grateful that God looks with patience and kindness toward those of us who are slow to obey and quick to forget. My dad's been reminding me of this statement much of my life, and he says, we need to be living this day in light of that day. To live this day that God's given to us in light of that day when we stand in front of him and we see him face to face for the first time. I'm so glad, I'm so thankful that God deals with those of us who are slow to obey and quick to forget and absolutely messed up in every area. God, in his mercy, offers forgiveness to us. 
to all who would believe by faith that Jesus is the one who breaks the cycle of disobedience. See, friends, we don't have to worry about whether we've done enough to leave a lasting legacy. If you are in Christ, if you are a follower of Jesus, he has done it all. He has laid out in front of you the path that we are to walk, the hope that we have for all of eternity, and takes the pressure off of you and me, getting every step of the way right. Because of who he is, he can look at someone like Jacob and declare, I no longer see you as as Jacob, but you are Israel. Now live like it. He's the same God who looks at us and says, it's possible in Christ. I no longer see you as a sinner. That's who you were. You are now a saint, God's child, a new creation who's a prized possession, holy and beloved, completely forgiven. You are a citizen of heaven. This is what is true for those who are in Christ. Live like it. And even when you don't, even when you forget, Oh, the gospel's good news. Even when we continue to mess up our relationships left and right and we don't obey God perfectly. For those who have been forgiven by Jesus, when God looks at you, he doesn't see your good attempts, but he sees the righteousness of Christ covering you. He sees the legacy of Christ covering you. We don't have to work really hard at leaving a lasting legacy, but we can give thanks to God who gives us the victory through Jesus Christ our Lord. And so friends, when when it's your turn and your friends and family are gathered in a room and they're looking back at your life, when the celebration of life or the funeral service is happening, what do you want to be said about you? What is the first thing that you want others to walk away thinking This we know to be true. Friends, I I hope that it would not be your legacy, your actions, your good works that they talk about, but the Jesus who you love, follow, and serve. May our lives point to Christ, not ourselves. Do you pray with me, please? Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your word. We thank you that it is so good. It lasts. It is so right and accurate for us even today. Jesus, we do pray that you would give us confidence in who we are that is built on a confidence of who you are, Jesus. Pray that you would work in our lives, remind us of what is true, help us to remember you and obey you. We pray this in your name, Christ. Amen. If you like what you've heard or want to find out more information, please visit our website at mymillcreek.com.